Hello. And welcome to Plotting Through the Presidents, where we dig into lesser dug into stories of the early United States. We dig into the lesser dug. Yes. <laughs> I'm Howard Dory. I'm Joss Dory. And today, we're going to look at a historical relationship that doesn't get as much attention as some other great friendships and rivalries. Interesting. It started as a beautiful founding friendship, a partnership that achieved great things until it went down in flames. It's the relationship between George Washington and James Madison. I was going to guess that. I love their relationship because it's really a great backdoor to so much about this time period. Like the issues, the characters, the personalities. And it's also, for me, the most personal way I can think of to tell the story of how the first real political parties in the United States developed. And we're going to look at how James Madison went from being the author of the Federalist Papers and the strongest proponent of a strong central government to leading the anti-Federalist Party. Oh, such a shift. It's like looking at the origin story of a villain in a way. (laughs) Yes, yes. How they slowly twisted their hearts. It's it's funny how many people's supervillain origin story can be summed up in the words Alexander Hamilton. (laughs) Truth. And at the end, we're going to take a look at some of the responses we got from listeners about possums. Oh, really? Yes. In our Billy Possum episode, uh, we expressed a lot of let's say, disgust for possums, <laughs> especially coming from you, I think. Yes. Um, <laughs> Jess asked you to reach out if you liked possums. Mm-hmm. Um, and you did. And yes. we'll, we'll get to that at the end. Okay. Sounds good. This is a story in three acts. And like the script of a Ted Lasso episode, it's a story with a lot of metaphors. Oh. Let's start with act one. BFFs. Mm-hmm. Best Federalist Friends. Mm-hmm. So I want to talk about how the bromance of Washington and Madison began. Okay. But first, I want to talk about who they were. So they did have a lot in common, both from Virginia, both plantation owners who enslaved hundreds of people. Who wasn't from Virginia <laughs> enslaving humans? Of the first six presidents, only John Adams and John Quincy Adams. Both of them married widows and had disappointing stepsons. Yeah. We did an episode. That'll bring you together. <laughs> right. <laughs> But there were some obvious differences. I mean, first of all, their age. Washington was 20 years older and physically about a foot taller and 100 pounds heavier. Than everybody. Give or take. (laughs) No, James Madison was especially on the smaller side. He was somewhere between five foot and five foot four. That is short. And he was maybe 120 pounds, maybe even less. Wow. I could crush this this person. (laughs) Maybe. He was sometimes called Little Jemmy. No. Yeah. That can't be confidence inducing (laughs) i mean i don't maybe you could crush him but i have a feeling that everybody back then including madison like he was constantly on horseback he was out like doing things they were a lot more physical back then so there's a there's a chance that instead of like wayfish and sickly like i want (laughs) to believe he was ripped all I have to do is run in his direction. <laughs> <laughs> if that's your and tactic. And I would take him down. <laughs> Through sheer inertia? Yeah, my, my tactic is, is ram tactic. Okay. Yeah. Um, so he better not look you in the eye or approach you. or He can do those things, but if I want him down, I will just ram him. <laughs> but what if he like moves out of the way at the last second? I mean, I'm, I am a human, so <laughs> not a ram. So I feel like I do have 
the ability to adjust my directionality based on, you know, where I'd like to go. <laughs> I'm feeling conflicted right now because I mean, I mean, obviously I love you. We're together. That's nice of you. Me. Know, Thank you. <laughs> ride or die. And I have strong feelings about James Madison in the, in the opposite way. But part of me right now, like, I'm imagining talking to him and being like, look, okay, I know her. This is what she's going to do. This is, you know, I, I feel like protecting him from you. Oh, you're not worried about me. And I think that proves my point that I would tackle him easily. You have a him. point there. Yeah. Yeah. So size wise, I think of Washington like Seabiscuit, the horse. Mm-hmm. And I think of Madison like Toby Maguire, the jockey in the movie Seabiscuit. So okay. <laughs> that also captures a lot about their relationship, though, too. So, okay, Mm -hmm. Madison is the strategic jockey. He's crouched down low so you don't see him holding the reins. And Washington is the war horse in front who's strong. All eyes are on him. He's strategic, too. Sure. So are horses. Yeah. You're comparing George Washington to a horse right now? To Seabiscuit, a (laughs) a winning horse. Yeah, but this is is a a strategic war general. Yeah. So... I think he would take offense, but who cares? He owns slaves, so who cares if he's offended? All right. So apart from the age and size, there was a a big difference as far as education, too. Washington, he didn't really have any formal education. James Madison, he went to Princeton. He graduated early. He was a brilliant philosophical thinker. That's where the strategic jockey comes in. But Washington was no slouch. He was a huge reader, very driven and self-taught, but he wasn't in the same league as a thought leader or a debater like Madison. So their partnership really began when George Washington was leading his ragtag Continental Army during the American Revolution. James Madison, at that point, was just a rookie congressman in the Second Continental Congress. And this was around 1780. So it was after a lot of the bigger names had already left the Congress. So like all the stars of 1776, the musical, Mm -hmm. uh, John Adams, Ben Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, they'd already left. Where'd they go? Um, They went to France. They went to Virginia. Back to Virginia. Yeah. The Second Continental Congress in 1780 was a lot like Saturday Night Live in 1980. (laughs) Okay. The cast couldn't measure up to what came before. Mm -hmm. It was so bad that George Washington, while he was trying to fight a war and looking for Congress to help... He complained to Virginia that they needed to send better people to Congress. And one of those people they sent was James Madison. So far, I've heard a lot of metaphors and similes. Yeah. Very good. Thank you. In 1980, Saturday Night Live had a brand new cast, and one of them stood out. Eddie Murphy. Oh. James Madison was the Eddie Murphy of the Second Continental Congress. So he was surrounded by a lot of mediocre comedians and yeah, he shined. Joe Piscopo. <sighs> Are you saying Joe Piscopo is an, a mediocre comedian? Um, yeah. <laughs> okay. Among Saturday Night Live cast members. Well, yeah, okay. He was a, kind of a workhorse, though. I mean, he did a lot of impressions and stuff, if, if you want to go back to horses. All right, good connection. Um, but... So Eddie Murphy shined on the cast and Madison shined up within his group. Yes. Okay. Yes. But who was he among? He was Madison. I'm not talking about about SNL. I'm talking about the Second Continental Congress. Who did he shine among? Names that you probably wouldn't know. Like Daniel of St. Thomas Jennifer. That's a real person? That is a real person. And Meriwether Piscopo? 
Okay, that's, that might be made up. Although Meriwether has been a name that's come up in the past. Uh, there's different Meriwethers, yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, you couldn't, you couldn't throw a... Trying to think of something old. Um, Bible? Yeah, you couldn't throw a Bible without hitting a Meriwether. Oh, I see. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yep. Glad you thought on that one. Thank you. <laughs> From the start here, their roles and their strengths and their relationship were pretty well defined. Washington was a leader... And Madison was doing the politicking and the the behind-the-scenes work to get things done. And even though they hadn't even met yet, in a lot of ways, Madison was Washington's best friend. Because he was one of the most effective members of Congress supporting Washington's request for what his troops needed. Mm -hmm. Madison even helped convince the Congress that Washington's army should be allowed to impress supplies. Which means just take whatever they needed from citizens. Wow. Even though at that time their weak sauce government under the Articles of Confederation, it didn't explicitly give the army that power. But Madison said, look, Washington, you're at war. Just do what you got to do. Just Take raid what whatever house you need. Yeah. Like if, if you need to get from point A to point B to fight a war mm-hmm. and we're not supplying you with what you need, just take it. Wow. Yeah. That seems problematic. <laughs> um, a little in bit. Lot of, in lots of ways. Yeah, it's not, it's not beloved. Yeah. But that's how Madison thought. He was usually very against giving the military too much power because that's how you end up with dictators and tyranny. You know, the kind of things that they were trying to avoid with this new nation they were building. Mm-hmm. But sometimes you got to bend the rules when you're at war. Just take that rifle from that, <laughs> that child's hands. Take the food from this family. Yeah. All, all kinds of stuff. Just steal their carriage because yes. you've got a war to fight. You do. So that's how Madison looked at things. You know, you got to do what you got to do when you're at war. The problem is, politically, we're always at war. So Madison could always justify bending the rules. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. Okay. I mean, I wasn't. But <laughs> I, I saw you about to. I'm just While telling I was you. stretching. Giving Washington the green light to take supplies from civilians, it did contribute to winning the war. But it wasn't until after the war that Washington and Madison really got to know each other and become friends. They shared a frustration with the government because the government couldn't do anything. Congress couldn't raise money. It couldn't conduct foreign affairs. It couldn't regulate trade. It couldn't do any of those things without all of the states agreeing unanimously. That's that's too much. It's impossible. So they needed a better government a stronger government, a government that could do the things that Virginia on its own couldn't do. So Washington, he wrote this great letter to Madison in 1786, where he pleaded for a better solution. And he closed that letter by saying, the consequences of a lax or inefficient government are too obvious to be dwelt on. 13 sovereignties pulling against each other and all tugging at the federal head will soon bring ruin on the whole. Yes. Whereas a liberal and energetic constitution, well-guarded and closely watched to prevent encroachments, might restore us to that degree of respectability and consequence to which we had a fair claim and the brightest prospect of attaining. Uh-huh. And he signed that letter in a way that he reserved for his closest friends. He signed it, With sentiments of the sincerest esteem and regard, I am, dear sir, your most obedient and affectionate, humble servant. Wow. Yeah. They were close. <laughs> I mean, he said, I want to be close. 
By signing his letter that way. Right, right. Yeah, he's like, we are close. When Washington said you were close, you were close. You're close. You were close. You listen. Yes. So they put together a constitutional convention in Philadelphia. I'm not going to go through the whole convention with you. You sure? Or that you process. sure you don't want to do that? Okay, day one. No, that's okay. It was hot. Um, <laughs> what's important to know is that James Madison was instrumental in framing the whole thing planning how the whole government should work. And Washington was there. He was elected the president of the convention. Uh, so he was like up there in front, mostly silent because that's how he mm-hmm. exerted his power. Peeing on the side of the racetrack. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I don't know if it works in that. You may have stretched the metaphor too far. I'm still with it. All right. <laughs> I'm going to take that metaphor down to the end. Yeah. So it was a partnership and it was a friendship and they couldn't have done it all without each other. Mm, that's beautiful. Although Madison did have some help from his other dear fellow Virginian friend, Thomas Jefferson. Okay. Was Washington jealous? <laughs> we'll get to of that. This? Okay. We'll get to that. So Jefferson was in France, uh, but he sent Madison a literary cargo of more than 200 books on ancient and modern history. And Madison absorbed those books. He chugged them like a transatlantic beer bong of knowledge, and his little body digested that knowledge. His little body. And regurgitated it as the framework of the Constitution. That's gross. Madison worked his butt off at the Philadelphia Convention, then in New York, where he teamed up with Alexander Hamilton to bang out the Federalist Papers, arguing for the ratification of the Constitution. And then he went back home to Virginia where he out-argued even Patrick Henry. Patrick, give me liberty or give me death, Henry. And he got it done. Nice. It was a massive group effort, but he, more than any other individual, created the Constitution and got it passed. Go Madison. After this ratification tour, Madison was physically depleted. Oh, I get it. He wrote... I'd like to see him chaperone at a recital <laughs> that's what i'd like to see and then we'll talk about depleted um i can tell that you had a tough day <laughs> <laughs> yeah he wrote to washington that he was extremely feeble and washington told him that he had just the thing he said moderate exercise and books occasionally with the mind unbent will be your best restoratives And he said, no one will be happier in your company than he would. So he said, what you need, son, is some Mount Vernon and chill. Yeah. He's inviting him over. Madison accepted the offer. Mm -hmm. And he spent so much time at Mount Vernon that his friend sent him mail there. Oh, wow. Yeah. Did Jefferson send him books there? I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. The partnership between the father of his country and the father of the Constitution, it wasn't just political or strategic. They were truly friends who enjoyed each other's company. Mm -hmm. In the Hamilton musical, they ask, why do you write like you're running out of time? Mm -hmm. And that's about Hamilton. Right. But you could say the same thing about Madison. He framed the Constitution. He wrote a third of the Federalist Papers. And he wasn't done. Wow. So it's April 30th, 1789, in New York City, the nation's first capital, The city is filled with thousands of people celebrating George Washington's inauguration as the first president of the United States on the balcony of Federal Hall. Then Washington comes inside to a crowded room full of congressmen. His hands are trembling as he's reading this inaugural address to them. There's street noise from outside. Everyone's struggling to hear his words, except James Madison, who doesn't need to hear the words 
because he wrote them. Mm-hmm. Washington trusted him so much that he asked him to ghostwrite his inaugural address. Wow. And he did. And Washington gives this great speech. I mean, the words of the speech, they were almost painfully humble. They're talking about his inferior endowments as if he's not smart enough to do this job. Wow. And he talks about how... Interesting. Yeah. And he talks about how he's in his declining years. It sets the bar nice and low, which is smart. (laughs) Like, I like the idea of stepping into a new role uh, and confidently announcing on day one, I'm only going to get worse from here. (laughs) Then you can shock, pleasantly shock everybody. Or... Die. (laughs) <laughs> yes. yes that's that's one option as well <laughs> wow so washington delivers his inaugural address and then madison goes back to the house of representatives he's just been elected to the house so that's where madison is and the house they say we should write an official response to washington's address so who's going to draft it hey madison how about you and he does he wrote washington's inaugural address And the House responds to it. So Washington, he gets a response, and he reads it. And he thinks, I should respond to this. Hey, Madison, would you draft this for me? So Madison does. You sounded a lot like Family Guy. Hey, Madison. Oh, really? Yeah, that was... Nice. Yeah, very confusing for my brain. Okay. Um, At this point, he's written the inaugural address, the official House response to it, and the President's response to the response. So the early years of the United States are basically like an epistolary novel written by James Madison. <laughs> oh, gosh. It's like he's having a discussion with himself. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Like, and the, like the term, what's the point of that? The term declining years is in the inaugural, and it's also in the response. I mean, I think they're, they're Washington's words, probably, because he provided Madison with his input. But it's, it's kind of like, can you imagine ghostwriting something for someone where they're like, I'm very old. And then you go straight to responses like, you are old. <laughs> so for a while, Madison was sort of like a prime minister to Washington, advising him, writing for him. But that all changed when Washington started to assemble his cabinet. Mm-hmm. For two reasons, really. One, Washington now had people employed specifically to give him advice. Mm-hmm. And two... Washington was assembling his cabinet with the two people who would be most responsible for tearing Washington and Madison and the country apart. Jefferson? And Hamilton. Jefferson and Hamilton. Yes. Returning from four years in France, Madison's old friend, Jefferson. Mm -hmm. When Washington first assembled his cabinet, he wrote to Lafayette, and he said how supported he felt by them and how they harmonize extremely well together. That did not last. (laughs) Maybe that would have been the case going forward, though. Maybe Madison and Washington would have remained close. Madison would have stepped into a cabinet role when other members stepped down. But that's not what happened. And it's all because of the big, scary financial brain of Alexander Hamilton. Alexander Hamilton. And that brings us to Act 2, Party Time. As Secretary of the Treasury, Alexander Hamilton hatched a financial plan for the government that Madison and Jefferson saw as an existential threat because it favored the northern bankers and industrialists and not so much plantation owners in the South. So this is really where James Madison goes from being the number one federalist screaming for a strong central government 
the man who worked the hardest for that government and wrote a big chunk of the Federalist Papers to being a leader of the opposition, the anti-Federalist Party. It's against a strong federal government and a leader. It's so odd and so very sad for his legacy. I don't know. Just, is that what he wanted for himself? You know, suddenly to be against what he had created? You know, I think you can look at it and you can say that it feels like hypocrisy or like a flip-flop. But I don't think he saw it that way. And that might not be the case. There was a consistency Mm -hmm. to his thought. So it wasn't like, what have I become? It's more like, I'm constantly adapting and growing to what's happening. Yeah. Okay. You know how they say anyone who drives slower than you is an idiot and anyone who drives faster than you is a maniac. Mm -hmm. That's what I think was going on with Madison. He had a sweet spot of power that he felt comfortable with. He wanted a balance of power with the federal and state governments being like checks on each other. Mm -hmm. And he was very vocal when anything upset that balance. He was not okay with the federal government sticking its nose too far into Virginia's affairs or doing anything that would disfavor their way of life. Mm -hmm. And that's what Madison thought Hamilton's banking system was doing. Madison never intended for the government to create a national bank, which was this powerful entity that was heavily slanted toward immoral things like speculating and investing and (laughs) manufacturing and making money and growth. The righteous, moral, southern planter slave economy, in his mind, didn't fit into that. So he's thinking, why should the federal government take Virginia's money and invest in ways for the country to grow that left the South behind? Were they trying to prevent the toxic capitalism we have today? You mean uh, like Madison and and the Virginians who are against Mm -hmm. this? Possibly in a way. They they wouldn't have been in favor of this financial system at all. So from Madison's point of view, it was like he created this government. He was like Dr. Frankenstein. And America was Frankenstein's monster. He saw it as his duty to make sure the monster was contained. So he went back into war mode, where he was fighting for the survival of the country again. That's when he teamed up with Jefferson to underhandedly attack Washington's policies from within. <laughs> so just how underhanded and shady they were, we might never know the full details of. John Quincy Adams once wrote, the mutual influence of these two mighty minds upon each other is a phenomenon, like the invisible and mysterious movements of the magnet in the physical world, and in which the sagacity of the future historian may discover the solution of much of our national history, not otherwise easily accountable. I think that's great. Yeah, I mean, he's saying, like, someday the shady shit that these guys pulled will finally come to light. But (laughs) Well, he's also saying, you know, too many great minds in the kitchen create, like, a magnetic force not to be be controlled. Yeah, the influence on each other. Yeah, it's just too great. Yeah. yeah. That it's molded into some kind of phenomenon and created, like, a black hole. Yeah, (laughs) like, if you're a teacher, you don't want these two sitting next to each other in the classroom. (laughs) Because bad things are going to happen. Right. And soon you might not be teacher anymore. (laughs) So, Madison and Jefferson, they built up an opposition party against the administration. The major newspaper at the time, it was the Gazette of the United States. And it supported Hamilton's ideas. Meaning it supported... The government, Mm -hmm. at least the executive. So Madison and Jefferson decided that they needed to start their own newspaper that attacked Hamilton and Washington's policies. Madison recruited his old Princeton classmate, 
a man named Philip Freneau, to be the editor of the new National Gazette. Freneau was born for this role. <laughs> First off, he was overqualified when it came to writing. He was already known as the poet of the revolution for his poetry. But the most important thing was that he always hated Britain. And that's important because Jefferson, Madison, and their Republican Party, they felt like Washington and Hamilton and the Federalists were trying to bring about a new monarchy and create like another Britain, just like the one they just left. And Freneau's hate became even stronger during the revolution because he'd been a prisoner of war on a British ship for six torturous weeks. Oh, I thought you were going to say six months or six years. Weeks. That's, I mean, anyone can get through that. You think? <laughs> <laughs> I could survive that. I, I, I bet you probably could, unless you got like cholera or something mm-hmm. or smallpox or, you know. Right, I can't. I can't outbeat like deadly diseases, but right. I could I could live through pretty adverse times for six weeks. Those ships probably did not have air conditioning. You're right, I'd be dead. <laughs> <laughs> so this guy was like Rambo with a quill. Mm-hmm. And they didn't so much hire him as they did unleash him. But they also hired him in a super underhanded, conniving way. Jefferson got him a job as a translator in the State Department which involved very little work anyway, and even less because he wasn't qualified and the only foreign language he knew was French. (laughs) So it was really a way to get the government to pay this guy to write an anti-government newspaper. Wow. Yeah. That is shady. It for sure is. Madison contributed at least 19 anonymous essays to the National Gazette. Furneaux sent George Washington three copies of the newspaper every day, Washington was like, does he expect me to be a distributor for this newspaper that's criticizing me? It was so partisan and anti-Washington that it helped push Washington firmly into a Federalist position. It's just making me realize that like that um, media has just been used and abused and manipulated from the get-go. Yeah, absolutely. For politics. It was, well, this, in this time period, there was no pretense of being nonpartisan. Like you had newspapers that were firmly in one camp or or the other. Jefferson, in a private letter, he revealed how he and Madison felt about Washington Mm -hmm. and how they could justify opposing the man who was once so revered. He said that Washington's memory was already sensibly impaired by age. The firm tone of his mind, for which he had been remarkable, was beginning to relax. A desire for tranquility had crept on him and a willingness to let others act or even think for him. Wow. And he called Washington the captain in his cabin attending to his logbook and chart while a rogue of a pilot has run them into an enemy's port. (laughs) God, that's very dramatic. Yeah. That rogue of a pilot, I mean, when in doubt, (sighs) blame Hamilton. Right. And that's what they did. Hamilton knew what they were up to. And he wrote an anonymous piece that exposed that Freneau was working for Jefferson as a translator in the State Department. And he accused Jefferson of hiring him just to oppose Washington, even feeding him information. Right. And which Jefferson did. I mean, he intentionally Sounds left accurate. out papers in his office for Freneau to see because he knew he had the key. Mm-hmm. Um, when all this came out, Freneau swore in his newspaper that he had never been approached by Jefferson to create this paper. And so Hamilton responded with another anonymous response, (laughs) saying, look, if it wasn't Jefferson himself, then it was 
carried on by a very powerful, influential, and confidential friend and associate. Everyone knew that this meant Madison. Mm Mm-hmm. And Jefferson was lying anyway. He had totally consulted Freneau on exactly what this newspaper was going to be. Washington let Jefferson know that he thought Freneau should be fired. But Jefferson wrote in his notes, but I will not do it. His paper has saved our constitution, which was galloping fast into monarchy and has been checked by no one means so powerfully as that paper. So he's saying the National Gazette has saved the country mm-hmm. with its anti-Washington administration rhetoric. Right. The attacks in that paper were vicious. At one point, they portrayed Washington being led to the guillotine. Mm. And that may have gone a little too far. Yeah. The newspaper ended not too long after that. But part of the reason was the 1793 yellow fever epidemic in Philadelphia. It just kind of went away for a while saying, hey, we'll be back when people come back to town and Never really came back. It was like us in the winter. <laughs> yes. Oh, we'll be back. We'll oh, be back. We're, we're sick we're with dying. everything. Yeah. Yes. But we did come back. We did. But did the newspaper come back? The National Gazette did not, but... So yellow fever happened. They weren't able to come back or recover. I get it. I get that. Now <laughs> I totally do. I'm Shay. And I'm Jody. We host the Rainy Day Rabbit Holes podcast, a deep dive into the misty mysteries of the Pacific Northwest. From the untold stories of eccentric pioneers to the secrets buried deep in the moss-covered forests, we take you on a not-so-serious journey through the quirky tales and hidden stories of the region. On our show, you can hear great content like... Dr. Dewey's teachings propelled Linda Hazard into a lifetime career of starving people for money under the auspices of healing. I could do that. (laughs) Run a cult or both. (laughs) And thoughtful insights like... Doll's son Charles is burned and poor Sparky is killed. (gasps) RSVP poor Sparky. No, not RSVP, (laughs) RIP. Oh, sorry. (laughs) From coffee pioneer Starbucks to feet on a beach and even Bigfoot, we have something for everyone. So grab your latte and hit play. Listen, learn, and laugh with Rainy Day Rabbit Holes. See you down the rabbit hole. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. So Washington, he still didn't know the full extent of what was going on, but he suspected that Jefferson could maybe no longer be trusted. What he didn't realize is just how much his old friend Madison was also involved. That's so sad. Yeah. So he, you know, there's betrayal here. Yeah, he didn't realize that until Jefferson resigned. When Jefferson resigned, Washington got a letter from his new Secretary of State, Edmund Randolph, with some disturbing news. It was about the democratic societies that were popping up all over the country. These were like clubs that were really pro-France, anti-Washington administration. Washington took the existence of these groups personally. Like they weren't just a political group, but basically terrorists who opposed not just the policies of the United States, but the government itself. Washington strongly denounced the democratic societies, and Madison called that denouncement the greatest political error of his life. 
because Madison is seeing these groups as essential to democracy. The people should get together. They should voice their opinions. They should speak out against the government. That's part of the freedom of speech and everything. So his new Secretary of State, Randolph, reported to Washington that a society under the Democratic garb has arisen in South Carolina with the name of Madisonian. Oh, wow. Shocker. Ouch. Washington wrote back to Randolph, and he said, My mind is so perfectly convinced that if these self-created societies cannot be discountenanced, that they will destroy the government of this country. And he added, I should be extremely sorry, therefore, if Mr. Madison, from any cause whatsoever, and that's in italics, should get entangled with them or their politics. That was the beginning of the end. Yeah. So, I mean, there's something wrong with Madison. (laughs) I mean, he has every right to believe what he wants to believe, but the way he went about this was... Sneaky. Seems really, um, really poorly behaved. Like, not the best human. Naughty, is what you're saying. No. (laughs) (laughs) Not naughty. Just a poorly behaved person. Yeah. Let me tell you about a podcast called Southern Gothic. Ooh. It's a dark history podcast that's right up our alley. It explores old legends, mysteries, historic true crime, and ghost stories of the American South. That sounds really cool. Love it. Do you remember when we visited New Orleans and we did like four things and three of them were like dark history or cemetery tours? Yes, we love that stuff. We could have just stayed home and listened to this podcast. Oh, good. No more vacations in our future. (laughs) We just need to sit home and press play. Yes. They've got a three-part exploration of New Orleans' most famous legends from its time as a French and Spanish colony. Yes. Southern Gothic is produced by siblings Brienne and Brandon Schexenider. Brienne's a professionally trained archivist, and she does the research. And Brandon is the host, and he's also an audio engineer. So the podcast weaves in narrative Southern storytelling with immersive sound design. Ooh, I want to hear what this sounds like. Yes, yes. Um, there's an episode on our old friend, the Bell Witch of Tennessee. Yes. That Andrew Jackson allegedly tousled with. Um, <laughs> and there's an episode called The Greenbrier Ghost that's about a West Virginia woman who became the first ghost to help convict her killer in court. Oh my gosh, I cannot wait. I can't wait to play this. Now, if y'all are ready to head on out to the swamp and give Southern Gothic a listen, head over to southerngothicmedia.com follow for links to all of your favorite podcast apps. That's southerngothicmedia.com slash follow. That is, if you dare. (laughs) I dare. Let's dare together. I I dare together. So their ultimate falling out, it came in a showdown between the president and the House of Representatives. And it all had to do with that other author of the Federalist Papers. In Hamilton, they say, John Jay got sick after writing five. James Madison wrote 29. Hamilton wrote the other 51. Talking about John Jay. Okay. He's an interesting guy who probably deserves his own episode. Mm. But what matters here is a treaty that he negotiated with Great Britain in 1794. George Washington just wanted to avoid a second war with Britain, Mm -hmm. which seemed inevitable because of what Britain was doing. And he knew that America was too young and fragile to survive a war at this time. Right. So he sent John Jay to England to make some kind of deal. And that deal was so favorable to Britain that Washington knew it would be extremely unpopular, especially with those French-loving Democratic Republicans. Mm -hmm. So Washington and the Senate quickly and quietly approved the treaty, hoping that nobody would notice. 
Everyone noticed. People noticed, yes. Yeah. <laughs> when details got out, the American people were outraged that we would accept a deal so one-sided that it basically accepted the Royal Navy's God-given right to just abduct American sailors whenever they wanted. Yeah. It sounds like the people lost their trust in Washington, too. Yeah. This was... Through that. He was no longer bulletproof, for sure, because mm-hmm. of this. And John Jay said that he could travel across America at this time guided only by the light of his burning effigies. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And Washington's house at this time was surrounded by angry citizens who were cursing his name. Alexander Hamilton was defending the treaty in public and he was hit in the head with a rock. Oh, wow. Yeah. Alexander Hamilton. (laughs) But no one was more furious with Jay's treaty than James Madison. Because one of the greatest differences between his Democratic Republican Party and Washington's Federalist Party It was who they were siding with in the ongoing war between Britain and France. The Democratic Republicans were all about the France. And the business-oriented Federalists, they wanted to make nice with Britain because they accounted for 75% of our trade. Yeah, that's important. Yeah. Not only did Jay's treaty strongly favor Britain, but it also heavily favored the economic interests of the northern states while screwing the southern ones. Like, for example, one of the things that Jay was supposed to go negotiate with Britain was for Britain to pay Southern slave owners for the enslaved people who joined up with the British to escape slavery. Yeah, it's like, we want want money for those slaves who ran away to join your (laughs) army. Wow. John Jay was like an abolitionist. He didn't even try to negotiate that. And this really galvanized the South against the Federalist Party. Madison was happy to use all this Jay Treaty hate to try to take down the Federalists. But he was hesitant to go directly after Washington himself. But another member of the House, Edward Livingston, he wasn't scared of Washington. He drafted a House resolution formally requesting that Washington hand over the Jay Treaty and all the records of the negotiations leading up to it. Wow, that's harsh. It's like Papa Bear being scrutinized. Yeah. By Baby Bear. (laughs) Yes, yes it is. And Washington knew that however he responded might set a precedent because this is the first time for everything. Yeah. Ultimately, he decided that he didn't come to play. (laughs) Okay, that's good. Yeah. Because he'd presided over the Constitutional Convention, Washington knew exactly what power the House was granted, and he schooled them in his response. He wrote, The nature of foreign negotiations requires caution, and their success must often depend on secrecy. And that's why he said the Constitution vests the power of making treaties in the president with the advice and consent of the Senate, the principle on which that body was formed, confining it to a small number of members. So is he saying, like, mind your biz, you're not one of these small number of members? Exactly. He's saying that this was intentionally created to exclude the House. Exactly. (laughs) He said that he went back and he looked at the notes from the convention notes on what Madison himself had said. He's like, remember when you stood in front of me and you said treaties were strictly for the president and Senate to handle? Remember when you said you'd hold me until you died? Well, you're still alive. And <laughs> Well, the importance of documentation. Yes. Document all the things. Definitely. He was using his own words against him. Mm-hmm. Anyway, he said, you ought to know what the Constitution says and what it means. Right. Yes. You ought to know. Yes. After singing his broken little heart out, 
Washington went full beast mode. <laughs> like Alanis Morissette. <laughs> yes, yes, in letter form. <laughs> so this sentence in this letter is so beautifully... This is Washington's words? This is Washington's words. This is Washington's jagged little pill. Um, it's so <laughs> passive aggressive that it's like art. Okay, wow. He was always kind of direct and aggressive. You know, there's a side to Washington, and I think we'll get to that a little bit maybe later this season in okay. one episode, where he could be he could be a sarcastic bleep. <laughs> he says in this letter, it does not occur to me that the inspection of the papers asked for can be relative to any purpose under the cognizance of the House of Representatives, except that of an impeachment which the resolution has not expressed. <laughs> it's like, if I recall, you haven't impeached me. Yeah, he's like, and he's, he's like daring them. Yeah. He's like, you're trying to impeach me? Yeah. Are you trying to impeach <laughs> me? me. <laughs> trying to impeach me, motherfucker? <laughs> the House backed down. Madison knew that impeaching Washington would be political suicide, and it could literally destroy the fledgling government. So we'd have to find another way. So at least everyone agreed on that. They did agree that on a couple of things. impeaching Washington would probably be a, ba- a bad move. <laughs> yes, yes. There were limits to what they wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so he'd have to find another way to derail this treaty. So his next tactic was to do what the House still tries to do if it doesn't like a law. I'm confused. Are we all this time we're just trying to derail a treaty? Or is he trying to overthrow Washington and his people who want a bank? Um, So the bank is a done deal now. This is the issue of the day. This is what they're voting on now. So this is what they have the power to um, stop or prevent. Got it. So they put all their eggs in this basket. And the country's inflamed about the terms of this treaty. So it's mm-hmm. a great way to take advantage of this hate and try mm-hmm. to stop it from put happening and get some momentum it. going. Yeah. yeah. So his next tactic was to do what the House still tries to do if it doesn't like a law. Refuse to fund it. So the House might not have treaty-making power, but it does make the budget decisions. It could simply not allocate the funds to enforce the treaty, and it would make it pretty much useless. But the sheer force of Washington's influence was too powerful for the House and for Madison's frail little jockey body. (laughs) The nation slowly warmed. You said he was ripped. He might have been, but I... Frail, now he's frail? You know, he was ripped, but this fight, man... (laughs) Now he's frail. Yeah, yeah. So Madison lost his fight, and it showed on his face, apparently. John Adams wrote to Abigail, saying, The anarchical warriors are beat out by the arguments of the friends of peace and order. Mr. Madison looks worried to death. Pale, withered, haggard. Fla- frail. Pale, frail, withered, haggard. Frail, haggard, yeah. ripped. And Washington may have won, but he was just as beat down. People were turning against him, parties were forming around him, and it was time to get the hell out. It was time to say goodbye. And that brings us to Act 3, our final act, the long farewell. George Washington's farewell address is a powerful, enduring work of art. I mean, it still reads as incredibly relevant today. And Mm -hmm. since 1893, the Senate reads it aloud every year on Washington's birthday. Um, The words, the way it came together, all of it perfectly encapsulates the friendship and falling out of Washington and Madison. So before all this Jay Treaty drama... Washington was ready to get the hell out of Dodge after his first term. Mm -hmm. And he needed someone to draft a farewell address for him. If he'd gone to Hamilton or Jefferson, that might have seemed like he was picking sides. So he asked his old friend Madison. 
So this is this is way before any drama happened between them. This is before he explicitly knew that Madison was involved in some of the drama going right. on. Right. Yeah. This okay. is before. So this is before the second term. This is as he thought he was leaving for the first term. Yes. After the first term. Yes. Okay. Madison writes it. Yeah, but it wasn't used because Washington stuck around because everybody on both sides, Jefferson, Madison, Hamilton, was basically begging him to stay. Because And then they turned on him. Well, they were already kind of turning on him, but they still needed the government to function enough because nobody wanted to mutiny on a sinking ship. Right. So they needed him at the head of the country to still hold things together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how many terms? He did two terms. He did two terms, and he okay. set the... President pres- for two President, terms. president, yeah. The presidential president? Yes. So... Did he overstay his welcome? No, that's a good question. I mean, he he easily, he could have won a third term if he'd wanted to. He was mm-hmm. still really popular, mm-hmm. even though some people were turning against him and his policies. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was just done. So yeah, it was time to dust off that farewell address. Mm-hmm. But at this point, Washington had some more thoughts that he wanted to add. And at this point, he didn't care about looking like he was taking sides because he saw the other side as actively against him. So he takes an address, which now he knows this is a friend who betrayed him. Yes. At this point, but he's still going to use this address. Yes, he takes this address and he sends it to Hamilton. (sighs) And he says, hey, Hamilton, I want you to write me a new farewell address, but I want you to keep this stuff at the beginning. Okay. So on one hand, he wanted to honor his Mm -hmm. former friend's work. That's nice. Yeah. But on the other hand, I think he wanted to get Madison's attention so he could basically say, like, I know what you did last summer. Right. (laughs) And make it clear that so much of this address is about how everything you did to me represents the worst parts of humanity (sighs) and what we need to guard against more than anything. Right. Ooh. Yeah. That's severe. So in the address, Washington, through Hamilton's words, warned that parties could become potent engines by which cunning, ambitious, and unprincipled men will be enabled to subvert the power of the people and to usurp for themselves the reins of government. He said that the appeal of parties was a fire not to be quenched, lest instead of warming, it should consume. Wow. Yeah, he wasn't playing. No, it's fire. Yes, he was clearly calling Madison and Jefferson, probably more Jefferson even, (laughs) cunning, ambitious, and unprincipled men. Yeah, that's an, I mean, nice way to put it. <laughs> yeah, well, that's how he put they it. They really yeah. were conniving. So he could have used harsher words. He could have, but this is his farewell address. I know, I know. I'm just um, saying he, he was nice. Well. He candy-coated it a little bit. We have the first draft of his words. Uh-huh. What I read to you made it to the final cut. Okay. But some stuff that I'm about to read did not. Okay. Because it was just too. Too scathing. Um, I don't know about scathing, but kind of petty. Yeah. Um, it's pretty clear that he was thinking about how Jefferson and Madison had hired Furneaux to attack him in mm-hmm. the National Gazette. In his draft version, there's a section that he wrote that Hamilton convinced him not to put it in. And it's because it sounded petty as hell compared to the rest of it. Alexander Hamilton. <laughs> Here's what Washington wanted to say. As some of the gazettes of the United States have teemed with all the invective, the disappointment... Ooh ignorance of facts, and malicious falsehoods could invent, to misrepresent my politics and affections, to wound my reputation and feelings, and to weaken, if not entirely destroy, the confidence you had been pleased to repose in me. It might be expected, at the parting scene of my public life, that I should take some notice of such virulent abuse. But, as heretofore, 
I shall pass them over in utter silence. <laughs> Not so silent. Not so but, silent. Um, yeah, that does sound petty. It if, does. You know. And for Hamilton, someone who could be so petty um, to still be protective enough of Washington's legacy to say, like, mm, it doesn't look good for you to call them out in that yeah. way. Well, Don't worry. I'll do it. <laughs> it's easier to do that and edit someone else. Yeah. Yeah. You know? And for Hamilton, it's probably easier to think about someone else's reputation right. than his own. Right. But Washington's feelings still resonate throughout the address, especially in passages like this about parties gaining power by misrepresenting their opponents. He says, you cannot shield yourselves too much against the jealousies and heartburnings which spring from these misrepresentations. They tend to render alien to each other, those who ought to be bound together by fraternal affection. Can you break that one down? He's saying that parties are going to tear people apart. People uh-huh. who should be united. Yeah, that's what it started happening from then on, it seems. Yeah. Seems like this was the beginning of that, and, and it he, never ended. Yeah, and he's saying that that leads to telling lies about the other side. Which still happens. <laughs> yes, yes. <sighs> yeah, it's it's basically his way of saying, you need to stick together. You better not devolve into parties, because that's going to destroy everything. It's just going to break your heart like James Madison broke mine. <laughs> that little monster. <laughs> but I mean, that is really what our country is based on. They truly are the founders. They founded the negative, too. yeah. I mean, they were human, you know? Yeah, not the best humans. It's no. It's sad. It is sad. But at the same time, you look at what they were able to achieve. Even with their differences, they were still able to get stuff done. And it wasn't all great. But <laughs> it's when you compare it to today, you see achievement and more compromise than we have now. Yeah. And a lot of the stuff they're saying about each other is in private letters mm-hmm. and in drafts that weren't published at the time rather than, you know, on Twitter right now right. or on the news. <laughs> so there are differences. There are, yeah. I can barely get my shoes put away. So I do admire what they were able to do. But I think, <laughs> <laughs> but I think, um, I don't know, when you're building something from scratch, progress looks bigger than, say, if you were making progress from this day on. Because... Okay, let's take this tangibly. So say you're building a tower with blocks. Uh At first, there's nothing. And then all you have to do is put three blocks and suddenly it's, you know, quite something. And then it, but then it, you know, so it looks like you've built quite a lot, but really you've just put the foundation together. So I feel like their their building was, yes, like notable, but I think making real change at this point in time on is harder and more complex. I think, no, I see what you're saying. And that that makes a lot of sense. And I think of it like what they built, maybe it was, you see it as three blocks, but those three blocks lasted, you know, 200 and some years, give or take a civil war. Or another way I might look at it is they didn't build three blocks. They created the game of Jenga and the blocks themselves. Mm-hmm. and decided how the tower should be built and mm-hmm. framed it. Okay, that's lovely. Oh, thank you. <laughs> but as soon as they did that, people like Madison, you know, were like poking their hole in the middle mm-hmm. trying to, you know, get blocks out and, mm-hmm. you know. Things fall. Yeah, things fall. Any hope for a reconciliation between Washington and Madison 
was lost a month after Washington left office. Mm -hmm. In May 1797, a letter from Thomas Jefferson to a friend was printed in New York. It had been written a year earlier, and Jefferson had intended it to be private. Uh Uh-oh. In that letter, Jefferson was telling a friend about the political rift in the U.S., and how a Britain-loving, monarchical, aristocratical party had sprung up. That's a mouthful. Yeah. And he said, It would give you a fever were I to name to you the apostates who have gone over to these heresies, men who were Samsons in the field and Solomons in the council, Mm -hmm. but who have had their heads shorn by the harlot England. Whoa. Everyone took the Samson and Solomon line to mean George Washington. Because Samson was like the Israeli Hercules, uh, and he would lose his superhuman strength if his hair was cut. And Jefferson is saying that Washington, he's lost his glory, and he's been tricked into having all his power taken by England. When that was published, it became crystal clear to Washington what Jefferson thought of him, and by extension, what Madison thought of him. Sad. Washington never spoke or corresponded with either of them after that. (sighs) It's such a crazy piece of their legacies that people don't think about very often. Mm -hmm. We think about Washington as our first president, heroic war general. We think of Jefferson as another founding father who wrote the Declaration of Independence. We don't think about how much they offended each other and how they were both like heartbroken. It sounds like Washington was truly heartbroken. I don't know that Jefferson was heartbroken right, in this. But I'm saying Washington was. Yeah, I think he felt betrayed. Yeah. He took all of this stuff personally. And in some ways, it was hard not to yeah. when you have people working for you that are working against you. Yeah. And Washington took that anger to the grave. Sad. In fact, the night before he became deathly ill, he was reading the newspapers with his friend Tobias Lear at Mount Vernon. And he came to some news about James Madison endorsing James Monroe to be governor of Virginia. Uh, Washington also really despised Monroe, too, Uh for good reason. But that's something we'll tackle in another episode. Okay. Um, But Lear was reading aloud to Washington. And later, when he was writing about that night, he said, On hearing Mr. Madison's observations respecting Mr. Monroe, Washington appeared much affected and spoke with some degree of asperity on the subject which I endeavored to moderate, as I always did on such occasions. So this is a man who's writing about the death of George Washington. He's writing on the day it happened, and he's trying to make Washington sound as good as possible. Mm -hmm. So you can assume that he's toning down anything unbecoming. Right. So when he says that Washington was much affected Mm -hmm. and talked with some degree of asperity... He probably threw that newspaper down and swore. (laughs) Yeah, you can assume that he was swearing up a storm (laughs) about Madison, for sure. Yeah. Now, I'm not saying that George Washington put some kind of curse on Madison here with some of his last words or with his farewell address where he said the appeal of parties was a fire not to be quenched, lest Mm -hmm. instead of warming it should consume. Obviously, I'm I'm not saying that. But James Madison is the only president who had the White House burned down on his watch. (laughs) Play with fire, little Jimmy. Watch out. I just i am so saddened by how Jefferson and Madison, it's just poor behavior. And it just puts all of the politics before the humanity of it. And I think that's probably where the country went wrong in the first place. And we still see that today, too. You know, when I think about where the country went wrong and and precedents that were set, 
that were terrible. I do think of James Madison. Mm-hmm. And we may, we may have talked about this in another episode. I'm not sure. But doesn't sound familiar to me. When John Adams became president mm-hmm. and Thomas Jefferson was his vice president, mm-hmm. that's the first and only time that you had a vice president from the other party. Right. Um, Thomas Jefferson wrote a letter mm-hmm. to John Adams because it had been a, a very acrimonious election. We talked about mm-hmm. that before, the things that mm-hmm. they kind of said about each other and other people said. But Jefferson wrote this conciliatory letter to mm-hmm. Adams basically extending an olive branch and saying, you know, let's work together. And he sent it to Madison first to take a look at and Mm -hmm. say, hey, what do you think? And Madison said, you can't send this. Oh, wow. It's not going to look good for us to be friendly (laughs) with these Federalists. So do not send it. Wow. And so Jefferson and Adams had like no relationship. (sighs) It wasn't until much later after their presidencies that they reconciled. And that's because of Madison. Mm-hmm. So really, we blame Madison for it all. All of it. <laughs> but, you know, if you're into karma, the White House did burn down <laughs> on his watch. And that's when he said, you know what? Maybe these Federalist policies aren't so bad. Oh, really? Maybe Jefferson and I shouldn't have reversed so many of them. <laughs> because, so when the Jay Treaty was up for renewal, there was mm-hmm. another version. And Jefferson was like, screw that, No. And they did a lot of things that pissed off Britain and helped lead to the War of 1812, mm-hmm. which is what burned down that White House. <laughs> and then the National Bank existed, but then they didn't renew its charter. Mm-hmm. And I'm talking about Jefferson and Madison together. Mm-hmm. So they did these things that made the nation less prepared to defend itself. Right. Um, and it bit them in the ass. Yeah. Then toward the end of Madison's presidency, he chartered another national bank. And he established a standing army. Two things he once considered evil. Right. I was just going to say. Yeah. It does not sound like him. No, because when he found out what it was like to be at the head of the government in Washington's shoes, responsible for the physical and financial security of the nation, he had a change of heart. Wow. I mean, but he never reached out to Washington to say that. Washington had died like 14 years earlier. Do you think he ever, did he ever write about that? Just how he saw Washington in a new light after being in his shoes? I don't know that he specifically wrote about that, but I do know that you don't see Madison like bad-mouthing Washington. After that. In his writings, or, or even much before that. Like, he was careful with his words. There may be a whole lot of letters that were burned between <laughs> him and Jefferson, but I think Madison was careful to preserve a legacy of still seeming respectful well, he, to Washington. He ruined that. <laughs> yeah. Does not seem respectful to Washington. Right. In 1825, Thomas Jefferson was old and infirm. He was a year away from dying. He was working on his baby, the University of Virginia. And he wrote to Madison asking for suggested readings for the students. Madison suggested Washington's inaugural and farewell addresses. Mm-hmm. He said, they may help down what might be less readily swallowed and contain nothing which is not good. Huh. So Washington went to his grave despising Madison, but Madison, I think, gained some perspective and respect for the man who once was one of his closest friends once he found out what it meant to lead. Hmm. And that's the story of George Washington and James Madison's friendship. Mm. Still sad. Yes. Nice. Yeah. 
So as always, if you like what you heard, spread the word. Like our listener and Patreon supporter, Amanda, she introduced the show to her dad. Oh. And they listened to the Billy Possum episode together. <laughs> and her dad immediately went out and bought a possum chew toy for their dogs. Oh. <laughs> he also apparently bought a package of calming CBD dog treats. Oh. Which the dogs somehow got hold of and ate all of. Oh, my God. So the dogs are fine. Okay. But one of them was definitely feeling good. Uh, oh, my gosh. Yes. Do, do I recall this correctly? She sent a picture of her, of dog, her dog stoned? Yeah. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Yes. That poor animal. Yeah. You know what? Maybe, I mean, there are worse things. Yeah. There, there's cocaine bear, you know? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Hot dog is not, it's not quite. Nothing compared to cocaine bear. No. It's a, it's a long, boring movie. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> I remember from writing the plotting blog, um, I had multiple people actually tell me that a post I wrote made them laugh out loud, which scared their cats. Oh. And that was such a great feeling. You like scaring cats? Well, I mean, okay, we've heard from a couple people that we inspired them to study history, Mm -hmm. which is the best. That's the best thing. But that still doesn't compare to knowing that I indirectly scared someone's cat from across the country. (laughs) I, I don't know how I feel about that giving you joy. <laughs> we learn, we laugh, we freak out your cats, we get your dogs high. What other show can say that? No one. No. <laughs> Speaking of possums. Gosh. It is time to share some of the comments that we got about possums. This possum discussion, it's like it never dies. You know what, Somehow, Jess? This is your fault. You said, if you like possums, I wanted reach to out to me. And I heard. I heard a lot. Carolyn writes to us from Florida, where I I think it's still legal to listen to us, but I'm not sure. (laughs) Carolyn says, I live in the land of possums, so I see slash hear slash experience them often. If you, by the way, if you often experience possums, talk to your doctor. (laughs) That's what I would say. There may be a rooted issue there. (laughs) And she goes on, however, every time I see one now, Jess and her reaction during the Billy Possum episode always comes to mind. I'm sorry to ruin it for you. Um, yeah, and she says, she says, I have a friend who is obsessed with them, so she shares often on social media. About possums? Yeah. You know, you can unfollow people on Facebook, and they'll yeah. never know. I will, I mean, everyone feels their own way about possums. I'm not going to judge other people's feelings, but that would be a page I would be unfollowing. <laughs> yeah, like, I've joined Facebook groups just to, like, identify a spider or a snake, and then I open Facebook, and it's, like, all spiders and snakes, and I'm like, okay, I gotta, I gotta do something about this. <laughs> and I'm outie. <laughs> yes. Um, so I'm saying, if you're often experiencing possums in your Facebook feed, find out if unfollowing your friend is right for you. <laughs> it doesn't sound like it would be right for this person. Oh, you I think, think this they... person likes them? She said she did. She said she comes across possums and likes them. Uh, I guess so. So why would she unfollow? I don't know. I, I guess when I read that, I, I think it must be a typo. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Leslie. We from- have some possum biases. <laughs> it's possible. It's possible. Yeah. But if we work hard, we can get possum. Oh, my God. Leslie from Massachusetts says, our backyard is conservation land. So we have a trail cam to catch wildlife. My now five-year-old affectionately named the possum Cheesy. She loves seeing the video, and at some point, someone gifted her a stuffed animal possum. I don't think I would mind seeing it on a trail cam as much. But that's the night vision with the glowing eyes and stuff. Yeah, not a fan, but I don't think I would mind that quite as much for some reason. I just don't want to be in the vicinity. I understand. All right. Suzanne wrote, I would never buy a belly possum, 
but I had to come here and tell you that I like possums. Mm. I think they are cute. They're actually very clean, never get rabies, and eat mosquitoes. If you live in Texas, anything that eats mosquitoes are good. Right. I have never had one approach me hissing, so maybe that should be more judgment on Jessica than the poor possum. <laughs> well, the possum may have been judging me and did not like what it saw. <laughs> it's possible. It, <laughs> because it approached me slowly hissing. It yeah. wasn't just hissing. It was approaching like the girl from The Ring uh, out of the TV. Yeah. I mean, I feel like I had the same experience. Right. So it's not just me. It might just be us, though. <laughs> it might just be us, which is why we're married. <laughs> yes. This is, we belong together. Apparently. <laughs> Zoe writes, I love possums. They're nearly immune to rabies. They eat ticks and they don't attack my dogs. So, right. So it sounds like people like them because they're, they could be worse. <laughs> yeah. So I wanted to look into this rabies and mosquito stuff. And, and one of the first things that came up was a 2016 article called, How Could Anyone Hate a Possum? Here's Why You Shouldn't. Oh, God. Uh, it's from Houstonia Magazine. I think that that article might be the root of a lot of this possum love. Mm-hmm. And looking at the article, I think it might have been written by a possum. <laughs> what makes you say such things? Well, listen to this. At the end, it says, so look beyond the beady eyes next time you have a run-in with Houston's humble helper. Better yet, leave a little fruit out to create your very own backyard possum patrol. Even if you don't, they'll still be around eating mosquitoes and saving your skin no matter what you think of their creepy little rat tails. And I'm not saying that the author of that article, Catherine Shilcutt, is a possum. (laughs) Sounds like she might be. From what I can tell, she seems like an upstanding human being. But (sighs) I am 100% suggesting that maybe she had some kind of ratatouille thing going on with a possum. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm just saying check under her hat. (laughs) Wow. In today's episode about the rat-like James Madison, I chugged some books myself to consolidate these ideas from some great authors. You can see them listed in our show notes at plodpod.com. In our next episode, we're going to talk to author David S. Brown about his book, The First Populist, The Defiant Life of Andrew Jackson. And we're going to dig into the unbelievable assassination attempt on Jackson and the wild trial that followed. Hmm. Sounds interesting. Yes. Thank you for plotting along Thanks with us. Thanks for plotting. Bye. If I want him down, I will just ram him. <laughs>